the hearts and minds and souls of the next generation have an absolute duty to communicate that basic respect and affection for our country that every child deserves to have. Hello and welcome to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wild from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott is your voice. Each week, Tony and I discuss mainstream Australian values, the future of the Australian way of life, family, community and Australian culture. More importantly, we want to hear from you. That is why we have the Tell Tony Abbott segment at the end of each show where you can ask Tony your questions on whatever topic you want. Phone in to the Australian Heartland hotline on 03-9946-4307 to leave your question. You can also go to the website australia.ipa.org.au where you can join the Australian Heartland community and sign up to receive this podcast sent to you each week along with special analysis from the Institute of Public Affairs. Thank you for supporting the Australian way of life. And now to this week's episode. Hello, Tony, and g'day to all of our listeners. It's wonderful to be with you for a very special episode of Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. Uh, this is going to be a COVID-free discussion. Uh, as far as possible, we are going to avoid talking about COVID and instead focus on ideas for Australia's future. Uh, Tony and I are going to be focusing on um, recent analysis in an essay and an opinion piece uh, by Tony, which uh, was very wide-ranging, visionary, long-term thinking about the big issues affecting Australia's future. Before we get into it, I just want to remind all of our listeners to hit subscribe or like wherever you're listening to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Tony, I'd just like to start by setting the scene a little bit. As I mentioned, you've written a very wide-ranging big picture long-term analysis in a recent essay and opinion piece published in The Australian at the end of last week. Can you tell us why now is the right time to be re-engaging with the big issues affecting Australia's future? Daniel, you said it was going to be a COVID-free discussion and let's try to make that the case. But just before we start, I did get into a little bit of trouble after some observations with you last week. Let me say that uh, my comments about what happened at the Shrine the other week were based on my observations of the footage on television. I certainly didn't see any vandalism taking place. If there was vandalism taking place, that's obviously a terrible thing. And if it's possible, people should be punished uh, for doing the wrong thing in that very sacred place. But certainly... Uh, I do think that, generally speaking, the COVID rules have been over the top. Generally speaking, I do think that the police have tended to be heavy-handed in their policing of the rules. And I do think that the sooner we can move beyond the COVID police state, the better. So, having got that off my chest, let's get on with the show. Look, uh, I obviously very much want the government to win next year's election. I think it's important that Australia always have the best possible government. I think it should also have the best possible opposition. But I think that uh, nine times out of ten, the best possible government is that provided by the Liberal National Coalition. Now, my experience, having fought two elections and having done pretty well in both of them, is that you are most likely to win when you are able to demonstrate how the country will be different and better under a government of your side of politics. 
that's what I tried to do in both 2010 when I said uh, uh, that there will be no carbon tax under a coalition government and that as sure as night followed day, there would be a carbon tax under Julia Gillard. You might remember she eventually said there would be no carbon tax under the government I lead and Julie gave us one and that set us up to win in 2013. But what I also said in 2013 was if you elect the coalition, uh, you'll see the bad taxes scrapped, you'll see the boats stopped, you'll see the roads of the 21st century built and you'll have the budget brought back under control. Now, the question for the Morrison government is, what is it going to promise will be different and better if the government is re-elected? Now, you go back to 2019, uh, the government succeeded against, it has to be said, uh, most commentators' expectations because uh, Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg were able to say very credibly, vote for us and you won't get Labor's bad taxes, vote for us and you won't get Labor's economy-wrecking emissions obsession. I think Labor is going to avoid making itself a big target this time and therefore the government needs something else to say. Now, right at the moment, to their enormous credit, they're saying vote for us and you will get an effective nuclear-powered submarine deterrent. But um, let's give Anthony Albanese credit. He has joined with the government in saying that that is a bipartisan position. Uh, many don't really trust Labor to deliver on that because we all know that the Green left has this nuclear phobia. But nevertheless, that is the government's, the, the opposition's position. So the challenge will be coming up with something that gives the voting public of Australia a good reason to return a coalition government for a fourth term. And that's why I wrote that essay in the excellent collection of essays by Jake Thrupp, which, as I understand it, is available now. There are contributions from John Howard, uh, from Peter Credlin, uh, from Barnaby Joyce, from Alan Jones. There's an interesting contribution from Gina Reinhardt, who doesn't normally go public with her thoughts on politics. So uh, there's a lot of red meat in there for people who would like the centre-right of politics to be as good as it possibly can be. Well, let's go through some of those issues that you touch on, Tony. The first one that I wanted to look at is the issue of what our kids are being taught about themselves and about Australia in our schools and in our universities. I want to um, just quote one of your um, paragraphs in your essay. You say, Australia's biggest long-term challenge is this notion of national illegitimacy based on dispossession of Aboriginal people and supposedly ongoing racism, sexism and environmental uh, disploitation. Wittingly or not, this is being fed by schools required to teach every subject. Uh, Tony, can you explain why this perception of Australia's history and culture is having such a negative impact on our national mood and how we think of ourselves? Daniel, you, you left out the end of that sentence, which was uh, they're required to teach every subject from an Indigenous sustainability and Asian perspective. Now, I'm all in favour of uh, school kids studying Indigenous Australia and uh, 
the prehistory of our country. I'm all in favour of uh, science classes, uh, looking at sustainability, and I'm all in favour of uh, some familiarity with the history and the cultures of Asia. But if every single subject from Latin to PE to science has got to be studied from those perspectives, there is a tendency, an inevitable tendency, to say, well, actually, Australia is fundamentally illegitimate because of our dispossession of the Aborigines. Mm. Uh, We're fundamentally uh, environmentally vandalistic uh, because of the way 25 million people are now living on a a continent which had perhaps a a half a million, maybe a little more, uh, back, uh, back in 1788. And we are culturally substandard when it comes to the more sophisticated cultures of Asia. Now, I'm not saying that Australia is perfect. Anyone who studied our history would know that there are plenty of black marks if you go back far enough. But, but the fact that millions of people at any one time would like to come to this country and make a new life here, a life which they believe would be so much better for them and their kids than that which they have at home, is a massive practical vote of confidence in Australia And I think that the people who are forming the hearts and minds and souls of the next generation have an absolute duty to communicate that basic respect and affection for our country that every child deserves to have. Well, as you know, um, the IPA in many ways has led the debate about the proposed new national curriculum from the government's Curriculum and Assessment Reporting Authority. Um, and some of the work by uh, Dr. Bella Debrera, who's our director of the Foundations of Western Civilization program, has identified that the proposed new curriculum, amongst other things, would uh, remove any reference to Christianity in the curriculum uh, and that it would teach that Anzac Day and Australia Day are, in fact, um, contested ideas, while at the same time teaching that ideas around climate change and climate science are to be taken as fact. I think this is deeply troubling, but also fundamentally untrue. What is it that we can do about this? We've put a lot of pressure in public on the current education minister to push back against this, which has been relatively successful, but what else can we do? Good question, Daniel. I guess anyone who's got school-aged children or grandchildren should, without being too heavy-handed and intrusive, try to get a pretty good idea of what those kids are learning to read the books that are on the curriculum, particularly the history books and the English texts, and be happy to discuss those texts and those books with the kids to try to get an idea of what the kids are making of these texts and what the teachers might be trying to spin uh, out of these texts. I think that's really important. Parents and grandparents should never be shy of having a deep conversation with their kids. And if the initial reaction of the kids is, oh, gee, Dad, do we really have to talk about that? Don't be too easily put off because in the end you might be surprised just how keen the kids are to have an intelligent discussion with someone who they know loves them and respects them and wants the best for them. It is very important, though, that every Australian child Uh, comes out of school with at least a good faith effort by the school to get that youngster to read 
write, count, and think, and to have a basic grasp of the thoughts, the values, and the history which has shaped us. I remember that one of the best education ministers we ever had in New South Wales was Rodney Cavalier, who was a Labor lefty, but he was a person of great intellectual integrity. And if the federal minister has the courage, uh, which I believe he does have, uh, if he has it in him to do this, and I believe he does, you never know who might join him. No, well said, Tony. I agree uh Bold leadership is required on the issue of what our kids is, kids are taught because that's the most important thing about Australia's uh, future. What I'm concerned about is the way in which this affects the psychology of, of kids when they're taught that they are living in a country that is essentially racist, you know, structurally racist, irredeemably racist, um, illegitimate, uh, that if they happen to have the wrong coloured skin that they're responsible for all of the um, very real problems in Indigenous communities um, through intergenerational trauma. I, I worry worry very greatly about how this affects the psychology of those kids and also how it affects their perception um, of Australia. This could really be doing a lot of damage, couldn't it? It could be, Daniel. Now, because I'm not in the classroom and because my kids are all in their 20s now, I'm a bit removed from it all, mm. but... Uh, Friends of mine have been watching this ABC series about the school that tried to end racism or whatever it's called, and uh, it really does sound like uh, a pretty crook effort uh, at uh, filling kids up with a degree of self-hatred. Now, that's the last thing we should be doing to our kids. Uh, Tony, I'd like to turn to a a second major issue that you discuss in your essay, which is around immigration. And Mm. we've had very high rates of immigration over the past couple of decades, roughly in Australia. Obviously, that's been halted uh, since COVID, but all signs are it's going to ramp up yet again next year on. Um, I'm going to quote to you an important part of what you say. Lower wages, higher house prices and more clogged urban infrastructure have been the unavoidable consequence of doubled immigration, averaging a quarter million a year for the past one and a half decades, end quote. Tony, to begin with, I'd like to get your assessment of what are the causes of high migration? And the reason I ask is because most Australians want lower migration levels, not higher migration levels. First point to make, Daniel, is that we are a nation of immigrants and immigration has been fundamental to the great Australian story. But just because we are a country that has and should welcome migrants, and just because uh, 99.99% of newcomers have voted with Australia, have voted for Australia with their feet, therefore turned out to be wonderful citizens, doesn't mean that immigration constantly has to be ratcheting up to ever higher numbers. And, And yes, Uh, from about 2006 onwards until uh, the start of the pandemic, immigration has been averaging well over 200,000 a year. Uh, I think it actually peaked briefly at over 300,000 a year under Kevin Rudd compared to the average 100,000 a year under the Howard government. Now, there are broadly two components to our immigration intake. There's the so-called permanent intake which is largely people who have uh, 
or supposedly have skills in demand and their immediate family. And then there's the uh, temporary intake. Uh, these are people who come in the first instance for up to four years as students uh, or as uh, relatively short-term business migrants. A great many of them end up staying uh, because uh, uh, they get themselves uh, married or they have kids or they manage to slip from temporary migrant streams into permanent migrant streams. And it's been very interesting, Daniel, if you look at what's happened uh, over the last 18 months as immigration has virtually stopped, it's not the high-skilled jobs that we're lacking, it's the low-skilled jobs that we're lacking. Mm -hmm. It's not brain surgeons and rocket scientists that we suddenly have in short supply. It's cooks and cleaners and fruit pickers uh, that we suddenly have in short supply. Uh, what we are discovering, as indeed Britain has discovered uh, over the last couple of years, where you've got the impact of Brexit plus the pandemic, is that immigration is uh, supplying a lot of low-skilled uh, workers and immigration has had the practical impact of keeping wages down uh, because there's a lot more supply, which obviously has an impact on price, of having of keeping housing prices up because when there's more demand, that obviously has an impact on price um, and contributing uh, to, uh, to the congestion in our cities. Now, again, I, I want to stress I'm not anti-immigrant. Uh, the people that come from low-wage countries to Australia to do relatively low-wage jobs, 99% of them over time become wonderful Australians. They really do. And their kids invariably do so much better than the parents. So I'm, I'm not anti-immigrant. I'm just saying if we want our country to remain a high-wage country with the enviable lifestyle and all the other things that we've taken for granted, we have to be careful about ensuring that the numbers do not go beyond our capacity uh, to employ at high wages, uh, to properly house and to move around our cities. I'd like to put to you the the issue of um, who benefits from a high migration program and you've um, alluded to some of that. I want to give you my my assessment of, of the issue and get your reaction to it. Um, so I think that governments benefit because they like bigger GDP and more tax revenue. Uh, big businesses benefit because they like lower wages. Um, universities benefit because they want more foreign students to increase their revenue. Um, and the diversity lobby benefits because they have their own ideological interests in having a large migration program. So I think that that means that there is not a lot of debate on this issue. This is a, a topic where many Australians either want to maintain or reduce the levels of migration, but the political class want to increase it. So that's my assessment of why um, we have such high levels of, of migration. Do you share those assessments or would you have a different perspective on that? Daniel, I think that is a pretty shrewd perspective that you bring to it. There is absolutely no doubt that business wants a bigger pool of labour, business wants a larger pool of customers, 
the universities have seen overseas students as a cash cow for the last 15 years. Treasury wants more migration because, yes, there's no doubt a bigger population increases GDP. It doesn't necessarily increase GDP per head. Uh, that's mm. one of the reasons why, uh, while our economy has grown strongly uh, for most of the past decade, individuals haven't always felt personally better off because GDP per head has not increased at anything like uh, the rate of overall GDP increase. So, so a lot of vested interests benefit from high immigration. Certainly the migrants benefit, absolutely the migrants benefit. They wouldn't come if they didn't benefit. But it's much less clear, at least in the short term, that the quiet Australians benefit. And on this issue, I think it's important that governments be more responsive than they have been to the quiet Australians. I just want to pick up on that point of, of governments being responsive to the quiet Australians. My opinion on the issue of, of migration and other big issues uh, facing Australia's future is we should put it to the people. I mean, we should have a plebiscite on this issue. And I'm not a big fan of plebiscites for the sake of it, but um, on issues where people don't feel they have a voice, I think that we need to have a conduit um, so people feel invested, that they feel that they're being heard um, so I reckon a plebiscite on the issue of, of migration would be a very important initiative. What do you think about that idea? Well, Daniel, I was the author of the only recent plebiscite, the plebiscite on same-sex marriage, because I thought that that was a good way of ensuring that whatever did happen there uh, would be broadly accepted by the Australian people. Uh, as you know, I was uh, on the minority side there, but I have entirely accepted the view of the people and I certainly don't think there should be any change uh, to the current law that any two people uh, can get married in the eyes of the state. I'd be cautious about a plebiscite here, to be honest. Mm. Uh, what I'd like to see are political parties uh, which are a little bit more responsive to what the general public are thinking and what the general public might need. Um, plebiscites have their place, uh, but they should be very sparingly used. Tony, I'd like to uh, turn to another topic that you've uh, addressed, which is to do with political correctness. And this is a big growing issue, has been for a a number of years, uh, but particularly its infiltration through and its enforcement, I would argue, through through big business. And again, I'm going to put to you a quote from your, your recent piece. Um, Political correctness has become entrenched in big public companies, in part because union superannuation funds are major shareholders. Um, Tony, can you explain the effect that this political correctness in big public companies is having on the nature of debate in Australia? Well, without wanting to dob anyone in, I was talking to the chairman of a major public company recently, someone I've known for many years, and he was saying that he goes to meetings with some of his large shareholders and they want to know what his climate change policy is and they want to know what his... Uh, inclusion policy is and 
They want to know what his business's attitude to LGBTI, et cetera, issues are. And he says, hang on a minute, uh, my business is about uh, producing a good product. It's about treating the staff well and it's about having a good relationship with the customers and the shareholders. That's what my business is about. These are all things that really should be for the parliament and for political parties to deal with. So with the, the big industry funds, they're very heavily influenced by the unions and by the Labor Party. Yes, occasionally a former Liberal staffer or a former Liberal politician might be appointed to the board, uh, but that's essentially tokenistic. Uh, the orientation is a progressive left, and inevitably these have a big impact on public companies, uh, which is one of the reasons why um, public companies that used to be strong supporters of the free enterprise side of politics make almost no donations uh, to the centre-right side of politics these days. If they make any political donations at all, it tends to be equal to both sides. And look, I'm not saying that uh, unions don't have a right to invest any money that they've got in something that they think is good uh, for them and for their members, but I do think that... Uh, when Paul Keating and Bob Hawke decided to mobilise a large part of our wages uh, mm. into superannuation that was uh, largely controlled by union officials and ex-union officials, they were doing something seismic uh, to capitalism. They were creating woke capitalism and that over time is having long-term effects that uh, have really only become apparent a generation after uh, they put these changes into place. Yeah, it's a good point you make about the seismic changes of, of Keating with superannuation. My take on that is essentially Keating changed the labour movement from the representatives of workers to the representatives of capital, you know, rather than you know, the traditional role of a union in the Labor Party was to try and extract resources from business and redistribute them to workers. Uh, they're now taking money from workers through their wages and giving it to the capital owners, which is, I think, a big change um, to the dynamic of Australian culture and politics. And it has meant that your average working class Australian doesn't have a voice. They don't really have a voice in unions or Labor. They have a bit of a voice in, in the coalition in certain times. Uh, but I just want to get your your assessment, Tony, of what is the the path, you know, the, and we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but what is the path in the future for your average quiet Australian, mainstream Australian, working class Australian um, to have some fidelity in, in the representation of their views in politics? We have talked about it before, Daniel, and you also asked me about uh, my earliest political mentor, the late, great B.A. Santa Maria in our last discussion. And mm. I very well recall B.A. Santa Maria saying repeatedly uh, in the 15 years or so that I knew him well that uh, people should join the political party of their choice and work to make a difference. And if people do that, uh, they may not achieve everything that they want. Uh, they may not even achieve anything that much, but 
they will at least help to make things better than they otherwise would be. Again, a phrase I've often used, including on this show, effort doesn't guarantee success, but lack of effort guarantees failure. And a majority that stays silent does not long remain a majority. So if we are disappointed with our public life, if we are frustrated with the direction of political parties, let's not just complain. Let's not just wring our hands impotently. Let's do what we can. It may not be a lot, but it might turn out to be much more than we ever thought. Well said. Thank you for that. Tony, I just wanted to say thank you again for joining us at something like 6am in Singapore. Our listeners greatly appreciate it. Uh, after a very long flight and I just want to wish you all the best on your trip and um, talk to you again next week. I look forward to that, Daniel. Thank you for listening to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott and thank you for your support of the Australian way of life. This has been a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more or to become a member, head to ipa.org.au.